As we continue our study of this great letter of Paul to the Ephesians, as we continue in our study of this great book, we want to consider just one verse tonight, and that is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, translated here in the English Standard Version as follows, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with with the Spirit. Now this is a most interesting verse of Scripture and one that has been variously understood and quite possibly misunderstood by many Christians throughout the ages. Its context has to do with various sins that the Apostle Paul is warning the believers in Ephesus to avoid. Going all the way back to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 and even stretching back, of course, into chapter 4, beginning specifically with verse 17. And this particular passage, this verse, Ephesians 5.18, provides us with a very, very interesting and compelling instruction from Paul about something very negative, like not being drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, and something, of course, very, very positive, and that's the filling or control of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I've, I've entitled the message tonight, Spirit-Controlled Living. Spirit-Controlled Living. And I think the outline is very, very clear, very, very simple. For us, there's a negative command, or we might say a prohibition, and that, of course, is verse 18a, and that is, do not get drunk with wine. And then we have, of course, a most positive command, or we might say an injunction, and that is the latter part of verse 18, and that is be filled with the Spirit, with the conjunction but, which tells you that there is a contrast here that Paul wants to make. And I think it would be well for us tonight to find out what he means by the first part of the verse, not being drunk with wine, even though that seems quite obvious. And then, of course, what he might mean by being filled or controlled with the Holy Spirit, which might not be so obvious for us. And so let's dig in tonight with that negative command or that prohibition, do not be drunk with wine. Very straightforward, at least in terms of the English translation that comes to us, do not be drunk with wine. This particular command, I think, must be seen in connection with the other sins that Paul has just enumerated and seems to be very much tied to what Paul has taught in this chapter thus far. Look back at chapter 5 beginning in verse 3 to set the context for us tonight. Paul is warning the Ephesians to avoid certain sins that may have characterized them before until they came to Christ. In fact, even if you go back to chapter 4, picking up a larger context, he of course tells them that the Gentiles, who they are predominantly in the church, are not to any longer walk as pagan Gentiles, non-believing Gentiles have done in the futility of their minds, Ephesians 4.17. They are darkened, he says, in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But notice again this contrast, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. 
You learned Christ, and therefore you were jettisoning those things. You were putting those kinds of sins out of that darkened mind of yours. You were putting them away. And that's why he begins in verse 25 to enumerate what kinds of sins those are. For instance, putting away falsehood, putting in its place, speaking truth to your neighbor, being angry about sin, but not being angry in sin, not being a thief being someone who is laboring honestly with your own hands, not allowing corrupting talk to come out of your mouth, verse 29, but only words that are building up or edifying the needs of the body so that it may give grace to those who hear and not grieving the Holy Spirit of God, not being involved with bitterness or wrath, verse 31, anger, clamor, slander, malice, but instead being kind, verse 32, to one another, tender-hearted and forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And he can sum that up then in verse 1 of chapter 5 by saying, be imitators of God as beloved children, adopted by God, walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, which of course we saw this morning, didn't we? And then to ensure that Paul is saying, and I want to tell you about other sins that I know are characteristic of Gentiles, pagan people, unbelievers, non-Christians. He says in verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And then he adds more, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul is very, very determined to ensure that all of those sins that might have characterized the Ephesians would be, com- would be put completely away from them and in its place all of their opposites. And he continues this theme when he gets down to verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. So all the way from chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, now to chapter 5 and verse 18, he continues to warn. He continues to instruct and even does more. He continues to say by way of a prohibition, here's my command, do not be drunk with wine. You cannot do that. It doesn't characterize you anymore. It's not what you're supposed to do. It's not what you're all about. And he tells us what drunkenness does in its terrible consequences. And what is it? Notice what he says there. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is what? Debauchery. Now that's not a word that we often hear used in common day English, right? Debauchery. Someone who's debauched. Some other translations have rendered this particular Greek word asotia as dissipation or even wastefulness, or maybe even this, recklessness, recklessness. Paul is warning the believers in Ephesus about the destruction their lives will find when they're involved in drunkenness. And Peter does the same thing. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. He says the same things to his readers. 
1 Peter chapter 4, almost using uh, quite the same language, not exactly the same, but very, very similar. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, the time is past, uh, the time that is past, Peter says, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. This is their life. This is their legacy. This is what they're involved with. And Peter tells us what it is, living in sensuality, passions, and here's our concept for tonight, drunkenness. And he adds even orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, verse 4, they are surprised, these pagans, these Gentiles, these unbelievers, with respect to this, they are surprised when you, you believers, do not join with them in the same flood of, and here's that word, debauchery and they malign you. They say, hey, aren't you involved with us? We got the drinking party going. Come on. Are you an old fuddy-duddy? Are you a teetotaler? Are you someone who's not wanting to have fun? Are you someone who's not a part of what we're doing? We're all having a great time. Where are you? What are you doing? And you know, I could get uh, into a, a wonderful an instructive rabbit trail about drinking and drunkenness. But I want to resist that tonight because I don't want to get into the debate about whether or not Christians ought to drink at all. Because notice what Paul says here. He says, do not be drunk with wine, right? And I do believe there's a difference. And I don't believe that there is an absolute prohibition against the drinking of wine, alcohol, of any kind. I don't think that that's something that is prohibited in the Word of God. But I do want to emphasize that when the Bible teaches about the kind of drinking that brings a person to drunkenness, then problems await. Consequences galore. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23. Because, believe it or not, and you may not have ever known this before, but the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 70 scholars got together in that time period in which the translation of the Old Testament was put together into Greek. And that's why, by the way, that it's called the LXX, which is, of course, Roman numerals for 70, because there were 70 men who translated the Old Testament into Greek, and that's why they call it the Septuagint, the 70. And this particular verse in Proverbs 23 that says, do not get drunk with wine, this is exactly the same Greek construction that Paul uses here in Ephesians 5.18. He undoubtedly borrowed this prohibition about drunkenness from the Septuagint and brings it now over into his Greek text of Ephesians 5.18. And in Proverbs chapter 23, I want you to see very, very carefully and very clearly why Paul has this particular passage in his mind undoubtedly as he pins Ephesians 5.18. And I want you to listen to this very, very carefully. Because while I said that there is not a strict prohibition about any drinking whatsoever, let me add this. While that is true of wine, and it may be true of other uh, lesser fermented drinks, 
That prohibition in scripture does not include what the Bible calls strong drink. We might call it mixed wine. We might call it uh, heavy duty alcohol, okay? That's what we would term it in our own parlance today. And this is truly, truly a very consequential act on the part of anyone who messes around with strong drink. Notice what Solomon says here. Let's start, say, for instance, with chapter 23, verse 19, and then we're going to go into the main text, uh, verses 29 to 35. But I want you to pick up on two sins that he talks about here. One is, is gluttony, and the other is drinking. And I would assume that in some cases, what he means by gluttony here is not sim simply something that someone is doing in a chronic way in terms of their eating habits. It's the idea of eating too much and drinking too much at a party, at a celebration. And he says here in verse 19, Hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be not among whom? Drunkards. Those who drink too much wine. That's what it means or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. It's a very, very important word. It's a, it's a solemn warning from Solomon, okay? He's, he's very much concerned about discipling his son and challenging him. Now, go to verse 29. And this is very instructive for us. And this is the background, as I said, where Paul borrows this particular phrase from the Septuagint of Proverbs 23, 31. And we will look at it in a moment. But let's start in verse 29. Who has woe? These are rhetorical questions now. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? What's the answer? Those who, longer, who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. That's that strong drink that I was talking about. And then here's the pro prohibition. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, at last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things, and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of the mast. They struck me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that before, but that's so telling. And it should be very compelling for us. It should warn us absolutely about especially strong drink, but even lingering long over wine. This is talking about drunkenness. And of course, it's not just drunkenness, and it's not even just gluttony, but it's the lifestyle that might also include sexual impurity, which Paul gives us in Ephesians 5, verse 3. He talks about sexual immorality. He talks about sexual impurity. 
He talks about sexual sin there, and he might have, even in his own mind, been thinking about the totality of Proverbs chapter 23, because look at what Solomon does where I left off in verse 22 of this chapter. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth, and do not sell it by wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit and adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. What a chapter. What a chapter. In fact, if you look at the very first verse he begins his warning there. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. In other words, if you look at that food and you lust after it, you covet it, he's, he's going to warn you. Verse 3, he says, with regard to that ruler, the one who's throwing the party, the official who's got the gala, and he says in verse 3, do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food do not toil to acquire, acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. In other words, you've got a king, an official, some very important person, some VIP, and he wants to throw this party, and he wants to bring all these people together, and in the midst of throwing this party, he gets everybody to eat all the food that they can possibly eat, and he gets everybody to drink all the drink that they can possibly eat, and then he starts making business transactions. And you don't have your wits about you. And because you don't have your wits about you, you start saying, yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, I think that's a good deal. And then you wake up the next morning and you've been swim, swindled out of your possessions. And that's why he says, if you're going to go to that place and if you're going to see that food, you might as well put a knife to your throat and slit it right then and there. Because you're going to get swindled out of your money. And Solomon says, I'm telling you, son, don't fall for it. Don't be someone who goes into that party and you eat all the food you want and you drink all the wine that you want because your money's going to be gone. Your future will also be gone. And I'm telling you that's the same way with that prostitute, with that adulteress. And I'm telling you it's the same way with that wine. It will be the end of you. How many families have been destroyed because of financial issues, because of money issues that are tied directly to the ideas of those who have the appetites that will allow them to lose it all for the sake of the pervasive lusts of their hearts. This is what he's saying. This is what he's all about. This might have very well been the chapter in Paul's mind when he writes Ephesians 5.18. Sexual gratification, the lust over long lingering wine, and he warns about it. 
And when we get to verse 29, who has that woe? That is, who has disaster? Who has sorrow? That is, who has angst? Who has contentions? That is, who has strained relations? Who has complaining? That is, who has issues with things or with people? Who has wounds without cause? That is, who has bruises from being beaten? Who is it? Who is it? And all the answers to these questions can be traced right back to the sin of drunkenness. In fact, verse 30 takes it directly to the heart of the answer. Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. That's strong drink. Heavy, heavy alcohol. This is the classic definition of the abuse of drinking alcohol. It is those who go to taste mixed wine. This probably has reference to someone back then who mixed their alcohol with spices to make it more pleasant to the taste and also to make it more potent. We could characterize it the same way as I said, mixed drinks by calling it strong drink, which is prohibited in God's word. And for those who are enticed by alcohol, they're described this way in verse 31. Look at it with me. Do not look on the wine when it is red. That's that phrase that Paul uses here. Do not be drunk with wine when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. And that's what he's challenging his son. Don't be tempted by the allurement of both the looks and the taste of alcohol. Don't be deceived. How many manifold numbers of people do you know and do I know who've wrecked their lives this way? It's legion. So many people, so many families absolutely have destroyed it all because of their desire for the drink. And don't be fooled by the television commercials which allure you to experience the smooth taste of that or this alcohol. It's a lie. No, it might be good for a moment, but if you linger long over that, like Solomon says here, it will ultimately destroy you. You say, that's your opinion, verse 32. Verse 32, at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. I mean, once you've ended the drinking binge you're on, the alcohol will bite you like a poisonous snake, stings you like a viper. And by the way, the Bible on a couple of occasions a couple of occasions likens the bite of snakes as a metaphorical expression of God's judgment. It might not just be a reference here to the hangover. Could very well be the expression, metaphorically speaking, of the end of a person's life who's drunken himself silly time after time after time again and he's lost everything and decades have gone by and now he comes to his appointed end and God brings judgment on his soul because he never, never responded in repentance to the idea of the alcohol in his life. It bites you like the venom of a snake. Verse 33, your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. You've seen it, haven't you? 
people are seeing wild things and then they speak those wild things out of their mouth and you're saying, what's he on? What's he doing? When you're drunk, you're not in control of your thought processes. I've always been amazed at those police checkpoints when they're stopping all the cars and when they shine the flashlight into the eyes of the person driving who's been drinking heavily and they're drunken. And you know what happens when they shine the light in the eyes of someone who's drunk? You know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. They have no photo sensitivity. They have no light sensitivity. You shine the light in the person's eyes and they look at you with a stare. And that's what allows the policeman to know they've probably been drinking as opposed to someone who's not drunk at all and the light is shined, shined in their eyes and what do they do? What, do you, what are you doing? What? Because you're, you're sensitive to the light. And, and what, what Solomon is saying here is that you will see strange things and you will say strange things because you are in a drunken stupor. Verse 34. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. You're so drunk you think the ocean is your bed. Or one who lies down on the top of a mast. Boy, this is so interesting. It could mean quite literally what he says. Someone who's climbing up on the mast of a ship to get as high as he can to make sure everybody sees him and all that he's doing. Not understanding, of course, that he's putting his life in peril. Boy, this is, this is so graphic. The one who gets drunk, who lies down to sleep at the top of a ship's mast maybe at that crow's nest and the effects of his drunkenness will make him stagger and it might even be that euphemism that says you're going to fall off and you're going to die. Verse 35, the final consequence of the drunken. They struck me but I did not become ill. They beat me but I did not know it. And then the sad end of the drunken. When shall I awake? I'll seek another drink. The morning binge drinker. Can't have enough. He's fighting. He doesn't even realize that he's been struck. I mean, I can't think of anybody who wants to live their life that way. Except, of course, for the drunken. Listen to the woes of the wicked which Isaiah describes in Isaiah 5, verses 11 and 12. Woe to those, Isaiah 5, 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. I mean, that's about as clear as can be. Don't give yourself over to sexual immorality, to gluttony, to drunkenness. It's a sure sign of a lack of spiritual life in the soul. And even in the New Testament, Romans 13. Paul says in Romans 13, 
verses 13 and 14. Let us behave properly. Now, this is the Christian direction. This is the Christian life. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness. You see, every time this idea of drunkenness is mentioned, Old Testament or New, it's always in reference to what pagans do. This is, this is what the non-Christians are involved with. Carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the, for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And I can't resist 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 to 8. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's always this contrast. The drunken, they do their drinking at night, they're not sober, they're wasteful, they're reckless, they're debauched, they're dissipated. Those who are true Christians, they put on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not carousing. They're not involved in the drinking parties. They're, they're the ones who do their work during the day because salvation is the daytime. Salvation is the light. It's not the night. It's not the darkness. And so that's what Paul means, essentially, when he says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That's the negative prohibition. Now, what about the positive? What about the positive? He says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled, or I like to say controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's the latter part of verse 18. And this particular command to be filled with or by the Holy Spirit, that's a present tense command. We might be able to translate it this way, although it sounds awkward in English. Be being kept controlled by the Holy Spirit. Since it's a present tense, continually be filled, controlled in or with or by the Holy Spirit. But I guess I ask the question, what does he mean precisely to be filled? To be filled. That's, that's a very interesting question. And I think in some ways it's answered for us even if we don't go outside the book of Ephesians. Look back at chapter 1. In chapter 1, this is Paul's use of this particular word, pleroma, which is the word for fill. And so we get an idea of what he might mean just as we look at the passages in Ephesians that talk about this, this filling. And this is what he says, for instance, in verse 21, that Jesus, Ephesians 1.21, is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and Jesus is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Notice how the church is characterized now. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the Greek word, pleroma. 
Jesus Christ is the head of the church and Jesus Christ is the the fullness of the church and he fills the church because the fullness of him who fills all in all, he fills us. You say, in what sense does he fill us? He fills us with his love, his care, his protection, his guidance, his word. All the things that you would assume that Jesus Christ does for his bride, for the church, he fills us. The fullness of him, the fullness of Christ who fills all of the body of Christ, the individuals, and then corporately he fills all in all. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Paul's prayer. Paul prays to to God for the Ephesians so that Christ, verse 17, may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, that's the power of Christ, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled in order that for the purpose that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Pleroma again. You may be filled. Filled to overflowing with what? God. God the Father. Christ. This is the filling of God into your life. The filling of God into your thoughts. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Christ, who descended, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Plerao. That's the idea that Christ will fill the entire globe. He'll fill the whole world with the presence of himself as declared king, as Lord. He's going to fill all things. Look at verse 13 of that same chapter. Until we all attain, this is what Christ does. He equips the body of Christ with God-given teachers until we all attain, the church, the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're going we're gonna to be taught, we're going to be instructed in the church so that we're so built up in attaining this unity of the faith, of the sound doctrine, and of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that it's going to mature us into full manhood. We're going to be an adult male to the measure of the stature of the very fullness of Christ. Play Romatos. The idea is that Christ will be, will be fully manifested by the teaching ministry of the church until every single person is built up to full maturity, to the fullness of Christ. And then chapter 5, verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine, for that's excess, that's debauchery, that's dissipation, that's recklessness, that's wastelessness. Don't do that, but do do this. Be filled, plerao, be filled with the Spirit. You say in what sense? The Spirit of God is going to fill you with the full revelation, the full knowledge of Jesus Christ. As you attain that knowledge, as you study the Word of God, you'll be filled by the Spirit with the knowledge of the Son of God. Just like we talked about this morning. 
being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're going to have your thoughts impacted by the Word of God to the degree that you will be transformed by it. And here, you will be so impacted by the Holy Spirit that you will be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will fill you. The Holy Spirit will control you with godly thoughts, godly attitudes. You you will be so keen in your mind that you will be sharp, razor sharp with the knowledge of the Son of God. You'll be maturing every day. Your senses will not be dulled. You'll be serious and sober. As a result, you'll be continually matured in Christ as over against the person who's drunken, the person who has his dulls, uh, his senses dulled, the person who doesn't see straight, the person who doesn't say the right things, the person whose mind is clouded. That's the contrast. In fact, you want to see the contrast? Here's the contrast. Look back at verse 15, just a few verses earlier. Look carefully, or watch, or be vigilant how you walk, not as unwise. You see the parallel? That which is unwise is that which is foolishly drunken. That which is wise, this is how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Someone who's filled with the Spirit. Here's the next contrast making the best use of your time. That's a person who's filled with the Spirit because he's making the best use of his time, not the person who is evil, not the days that are evil. That's for the drunken. And then here's another one, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish. What does it mean to be foolish? In this context, somebody who's drunken. Don't be foolish. Here's its opposite, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know what the will of the Lord is? to be filled with the Spirit. Do you see the contrast there? Verse 15, contrast. Verse 16, contrast. Verse 17, contrast. Verse 18, contrast. That's what you do. By the way, Paul might have actually been borrowing again from the Old Testament when he was talking about the filling of the Spirit and not grieving the Spirit, as he mentions in chapter 4, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, but be filled with the Spirit. Those two references, Ephesians 4.30 and Ephesians 5.18. Listen to Isaiah 63. You don't have to turn there for the sake of our time, but listen to Isaiah 63, verses 10 and 11. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, referring to the Israelites who rebelled against God, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 4.30. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? The grieving of the Holy Spirit and God putting the Holy Spirit in their midst. Paul might be borrowing that same kind of language and he says, I want to tell you new covenant people. I want to tell you about yourself. Here's what God has done for you. He's filled you with his spirit. He controls you by his spirit and that's the way you ought to live. And when you get drunk, if you were to do that, you would be grieving this same Holy Spirit who's supposed to be controlling your life. 
And some people have often asked me, okay, now when this idea of filling is mentioned here, is it the idea of like filling up a cup of water? No, I don't really think so. It's not the sense of how much you are being filled up with water, the sense is how much are you being controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's not as though you and I have to have just a little bit more of the Holy Spirit, just a little bit more of the Holy Spirit. Well, fill me up to this level. Fill me up to this level of you, Holy Spirit. It's not that. It's how much does the Holy Spirit have of you. It's not how much do you have of the Holy Spirit. It's how much does the Holy Spirit have of you. That's the idea. Does he have your life? First and foremost, are you a Christian? Are you a person who's submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit's control in your life? Have you repented of your sins? Have you claimed Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, turning from those evil ways, including drunkenness, and sought the Holy Spirit's power to live the Christian life? Well, if you do, it's not a question of how much you have of the Holy Spirit. It's a question of how much the Holy Spirit has of you. Being controlled by the Spirit means that you and I are coming under the sway of His power. And that's the careful walk. This is the wise walk. Be being kept controlled by the Holy Spirit. And drunkenness is the opposite of that. It's foolish. It's the days that are evil. It's unwise behavior. And by the way, you know that there are other references in our New Testament, if you're taking notes, where wine and the issue of the Holy Spirit are mentioned in some similar texts. Look at Luke, Luke chapter 1. You might not have seen this before, But this is important. This is another reference that brings these two ideas of wine and the Holy Spirit together in a very interesting context. And I would would submit to you that these are passages that at least hint at this concept, that if you were to stay away from wine, you were to stay away from alcohol so that your mind could be clear you would then be having greater direction with regard to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, I didn't say I was going to say that all wine has been prohibited, right? But I'm saying if I were to say something like that, I might go to this passage in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, and I would look at John the Baptist. And I know he's unique, and I know he's the unique forerunner of the Lord, but notice what is said about him. Luke 1.15, for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Controlled with the Holy Spirit. You know, there's, there's, there's this contrast here. Someone who's controlled by the Spirit, someone who is dominated by the Spirit's power, someone who has the Holy Spirit's sway in their life because their mind is not dull with the drunkenness of the night, but they're keen for the skill of living each and every day. How about Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. This might again be very familiar to you and it's again a contrast. Acts chapter 2, you remember the day of Pentecost? And the coming of the Holy Spirit? 
And verse 4 says this, Acts 2.4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You remember, you remember all, these, all these Jews were coming into Jerusalem, right? Uh, because of, of Passover, because of the festivals, and they were coming in from all around the countries of, of, uh, around Israel. And as they were coming, of course, so many of them, even though Jews, they were living so far outside of Jerusalem and in other countries that they'd adopted all the cultural mores around them. And some of them, of course, were born into these families and they were in other places and they were speaking the dialects of those other places uh, and the, the languages of those other places. And so they didn't speak Hebrew. They didn't speak the language. And the miraculous idea of what was happening at Pentecost was that everybody was hearing the gospel in their own language. In their own language. And they were all filled, according to verse 4, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And all, verse 12, were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are what? Filled with new wine. Interesting. See the contrast. And of course, Peter says, no, no, not at all. Verse 14, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And then, of course, he quotes from the prophet Joel. You think these guys are drunk? Not at all. They're actually filled with the Holy Spirit so that they could listen to the word of God, the gospel, in their own language. You see, when we're filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit, we're progressively transformed into the very image of Christ through the Spirit, into the very image of God, which is exactly the opposite of someone, someone who's lingering long with wine and becoming drunken. Total opposite. You want to be someone who's an imitator of God. That's what chapter 5 verse 1 says. You want to be an imitator of God. You want to be conformed to the image and likeness of your creator. Chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. That's, that's what you want. That's what Paul's telling them. Be imitators of God. He's not out in a binge drinking party. His senses aren't dulled. And if you want to know what you ought to be filled with, be filled with the word of God, the word of Christ, and dwell in that word richly, richly. That's how you progressively, practically, continually fill your mind with the Holy Spirit's word because he is the inspirer of the word of God. That's what you're all about. That's what you are as Christians. That's what he's saying to them. And that's what I'm saying to you. Now, very practically as we close, what about yourself? You say, well, you know, I drink wine occasionally for my meal and and I don't have any problem with that. And my answer to you of that is that's between you and the Lord. That's your conscience. That's up to you. I'm not talking about that. What I am talking about is someone 
who can't control those things, someone who is not controlling those things, someone who is involved in drunkenness, whether it's public drunkenness or not, and they're losing their senses. Their senses are dull. They're in the darkness. They say strange things and they see strange things because they haven't controlled themselves and something else is controlling them. And the opposite of that is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Allow Him to control your life. And he will also give you the opportunity, I suspect, if you are a person who drinks at all for any reason, he gives you the sense of when enough is enough. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He is the one who controls us, not drunkenness and not sexual immorality and not gluttony and not drinking parties and not eating to that gluttonous end to where your life is out of control. Why don't we bow together in a word of prayer and thank the Apostle Paul for this teaching. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us to give us this major instruction of the Apostle Paul. And you will tell us shortly through Paul's pen what being filled with the Spirit practically looks like with some very, very clear and telling principles in verses 19 and 20 and 21. And even beyond, all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, you're telling us what a wife looks like who's controlled by the Spirit. You're telling us what a husband looks like who's controlled by the Spirit. You're telling us what children look like when they're controlled by the Spirit and what parents look like when they're controlled by the Spirit and employees when they're controlled by the Spirit and employers when they're controlled by the Spirit. You, you show us so much in, in the vast array of the principles of your Word. And you tell us in verses 19 and 20 and 21 directly and explicitly what it looks like to be controlled by the Spirit, including singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your hearts to the Lord and, and submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. You, you tell us these things in such practical ways and you show us with great direction and divine wisdom and understanding how we ought to operate our Christian lives and pursue Christian truth. And it's so opposite, Father, of the way the world operates. Those who are pursuing the next drink, who can't wait until the next party, who are vexed when they don't see others running with them to the next gig and who can't understand why people don't want to have the kind of fun that they have seeing strange things and saying strange things under the influence of heavy alcohol and drunkenness. Father, these principles, it seems to us, couldn't be any clearer. So Father, give us wisdom. Give us 
great amounts of wisdom anytime the idea of alcohol is presented in our presence. Let us be judicious. Let us be careful how we walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of our time for the days are evil. Don't let us be foolish doing and saying and thinking foolish things. But let us know what the will of the Lord is. And it is, it is to stay away from sexual immorality and, and gluttony and, and drunkenness. Just as these principles in Proverbs 23 have told us so clearly tonight. Father, give us such clear and keen minds that we are always thinking and acting in ways that you would use as instruments to draw people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our clarity, we're saying and doing things that make for such a contrast to darkened, drunken living. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for the whole day, Father. And even as we have worshipped this morning and this evening, multitudes who have not are waiting to hear our clear, clean message of hope. And may we give that to them with a ready mind, logical thoughts, and clear actions that show them the difference between their approaches to life and ours. And might you use us because we are being blessed and not experiencing the consequences with which so many of them are involved. And might they reach out to us and say, help me. Help me with my life. It's out of control. And might we show them that the only way to live is by being continually filled and controlled by the Spirit, the very Holy Spirit of God. We thank Him we thank you, Christ. And through you, we thank you, Father, for the sake of the strong name of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.